Hi there, welcome to the Innovators Book Club podcast. We're a bunch of colleagues who work together at a company called Hype Innovation, and we like to read innovation books. So each month we all read the same book, then we get on a call to discuss it and see what we can learn. In this episode, we're looking at Stephen Johnson's Where Good Ideas Come From. Let's get into it. Today we're looking at Stephen Johnson's uh, Where Good Ideas Come From. An interesting pick for this book club because it's the first, I guess, non-practitioner book that we've decided to look at. It's more of a history book, history of innovation, and uh, we're going to dive into some of the concepts. Um, just as a high-level overview, um, Stephen Johnson is looking to understand, obviously, where good, great ideas, great innovations come from. And one of the interesting questions is, is it more about the individual, the, the individual lone uh, brilliant inventor, or is it more about the environment around these people? that helps to create innovations. And he's come up with what he thinks is something of a pseudo framework, seven major themes that he thinks uh, occur again and again in successful innovations. And um, we're going to look at just a few of those, not all seven, there's too much detail. Um, But we're going to look at three of the most interesting ones, the adjacent possible, liquid networks, and the slow hunch. And then we'll come back to one of the ideas he leaves us with at the end of the book, which is about the fourth quadrant, which I think is um, an interesting... (laughs) interesting uh, point he takes on how innovation can uh, can happen more frequently in the world uh, but we'll come back to that so um let's just see who we got so we got michael in denver good morning morning how's it going in denver it's going well it's going beautifully we're really soaked oh, great uh joining me here in bonn is uh uh michelle hi everybody hi everybody what are city <laughs> and from boston we have ninetta coswick how's it going ninetta Hi everyone, sunny 74 degrees for today, so I'm happy. <laughs> ah, lucky you, it's raining here, raining buckets in uh, Germany. We had that on Monday. Oh. <laughs> okay, <laughs> all right, well let's let's get stuck in. So, a uh, fascinating book, I think. Um, let's start with one of the uh, the key ideas in the whole book, and that's the adjacent possible. Ninetta, why don't you give us uh, an overview of what that's all about? Okay, so the adjacent possible is all about what changes or innovations are actually possible at a given time, and the idea is that you can make progress only in certain steps and that there needs to be a certain sequence, so that sequence where you're actually kind of limited with what, with what can happen at, at any given time. And this term was coined by Stuart Kaufman, who was an evolutionary biologist, And he developed this term by looking at how life developed. And he goes all the way back to the primordial soup of um, molecules that is supposed to be the the root of all life. And he said that um, certain molecules could combine into more complex molecules at the very beginning. And then those complex molecules, again, needed to develop into cells. And then those cells could organize into more complex life forms. And whatever the next step in this evolution was, that is what is the adjacent possible. And that, um, for example, you couldn't create a human right away out of out of this um, soup. So this is um, a very, very um, <laughs> biological example. He takes another example that um, he sticks to throughout the book, um, and I, I really like that one, and he compared it to um, a house. He was saying that the adjacent possible actually exp- 
expands as when you explore the, the boundaries, so each new step. And he said it's it's a house with um, different rooms where whenever you enter a new room, you get to discover new rooms. So as, as soon as you enter in, in one room, you get um, a, nor, a, a new selection of doors that you can explore, and that's the new adjacent possible. And one um, maybe somewhat tech example that he um, brings up is, is YouTube as an example that um, certain things need to happen at a certain time and um, that sometimes the time is just not ready yet for a given innovation is YouTube. Um, he was um, proposing that if you had come up with the idea of YouTube 10 years earlier, that would have been a spectacular failure because everybody was still using very, very um, slow dial-up connections and the average U-club, uh, YouTube clip would have taken an hour to, to download and um, that would not have been um, fun at all. And also he's talking about the concepts of um, platforms and that YouTube was based on Adobe's Flash platform and that wasn't even um, available 10 years earlier. So if they had done this 10 years ago, um, YouTube was still out of the realm of the adjacent possible and only 10 years later when you had um, the faster internet connections and Adobe, then it actually could happen and it was a, a stellar success. So this is the idea of the adjacent possible. Right. So at any particular point in time um, in history, there is really only a set number of possibilities to explore, right? But I think what he's saying is that, um, that I find interesting is uh, you need to create environments that explore more opportunities faster, right? More adjacent possibilities. And those environments become more successful in terms of innovation. Is, is that right? I think so. And I, and I like the idea that he brought up that everybody has their personal um, adjacent possible so that um, it, it's not only in, in general looking at, at big innovations but also if you personally want to come up with um, ideas that um, who, who, your, your personal space is, is your, your limit and that this is what you need to, to explore and expand if you want to be more innovative and come up with new things and make progress. Yeah, another example he lists that I found quite interesting is um, the one from Charles Babbage. Uh, in the in the uh, 19th century, uh, yeah, 19th century, right, where he actually stumbled across the ability um, or the idea to create a computer, basically, a computer that could mm -hmm. be programmed um, was the fundamental difference. But he was about 100 years ahead of his time, right? So he didn't have the network around him to explore enough possibilities to make it happen. It could only happen 100 years in the future after a number of other small iterations had actually happened to make it possible, right? You would agree? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, yes, I, I totally agree. I, I, I like that, that example um, also because he had those two inventions, the one, um, the difference um, machine that did basic uh, calculations, that was a, a super um, success, and then uh, the other in invention, which basically was a computer, was just way ahead of time, and um, people, it, it, it didn't happen yet because it was too slow and um, people didn't see the, the benefit yet. Do you remember a point he makes in that same chapter about the multiple, the idea that um, two sort of uh, academic researchers hit upon the same idea but completely independently? Do you recall that? Yeah, yeah he compiled a, a huge list. Um, I, th I think they came up with, with hundreds of, of multiples and um, 
I think one was the discovery of the oxygen molecule. Um, oh God, I don't recall all, all the examples. This point is though that um, this this proves that um, when when the time is ready for a certain change or a next discovery, that um, actually there's a lot of examples where several people discover the same thing at at the same time, just because the, it, it's now in the realm of the adjacent possible. Um, how he refers to it, and I thought that's an, an interesting discovery. Mm. Okay, cool. So that supports his point. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so one uh, one thing that really supports this is the idea of li liquid networks, where ideas are more free to exchange and people have more connections with each other. So, um, uh, Michael, why don't you give us some background on what liquid networks are? I will do that. Um, so the next chapter is actually building on the adjacent possible, and what he's really talking about is that ideas aren't single flashes, it's not a stroke, it's not the uh, genius insight, the epiphany or eureka moment, but in fact it is a network. Um, it is a firing of all cylinders, of all neural uh, uh, synapses. Basically, it, it, the liquid network is something that has to be in flow and it has to be a, a connection of multiple pieces. Uh, the, he uses the metaphor of, of 100 billion neurons in the mind um, firing at different in different ways, and, and and the other thing about it, so it becomes is he, he does a tracing of the the you know of the mind of of all the way back to um, how the how the brain works in firing, and says that it is in fact a network, and by that metaphor then actually extends that to saying it's liquid in the sense that it is a flow. It can't be plastic, it has to be moving, it has to be firing, it has to be changing. Some of the things that he talks about um, uh, as you know, building on this is uh, the, the cities, the the evolution of cities in, in civilization in terms of, you know, from hunter-gatherers to becoming... Um, organized around cities and as cities flower, flowered and grew, uh, more innovations were possible. Um, prime example becomes the, the Renaissance where he deals with the fact that there were, uh, you know, this, this great artistic uh, capability. But one of the examples he uses is double entry uh, accounting, which Interestingly, nobody took credit for it. It was something that just sort of happened as people were gathering, as the marketplaces were growing, and, and people were exchanging tips on how to do financial counter, accounting. So the the end of the, the you know the upshot at the end of this is that in many ways is that um, it's not a wisdom of the crowd, but the wisdom of someone in the crowd. It's not that the network itself is smart; it's that the individuals get smarter because they. They are connected to the network. Mm. That is really that's the really most important piece at the center of this of this pattern. Absolutely, yeah. And he gives a couple of examples of that, right? So one is um, uh, the MIT Building 20, and also Microsoft's new Building 99, which perhaps doesn't have the same history, but certainly the MIT Building 20 um, is is one of the major examples he gives of this kind of network of creativity, right? <clears throat> Yes. Yeah, I mean, what's interesting about that is that, you know, Building 20 was, uh, uh, it was a temporary building, so there was no concern about what had to happen. It wasn't strongly regulated, so there wasn't some sort of authoritarian oversight that, that demanded what had to happen there. That was, so different things could happen. They could write on the walls, they could bust down a wall, they could poke holes in the ceiling if they had to, so people were trying all kinds of experiments all the time. Um, Something similar to that actually does what he talks about uh, 
Kevin Dunbar, who's a, a psychologist researcher, um, because he's talking about uh, his research was built all around that we've had this long history of, of people claiming eureka moments outside of the network. And what Den Dunbar did, he decided to actually um, follow, you know, sit in a lab and follow scientists. And he would be in the lab and he would look at what they're doing. On, and it was never this sense of when they're looking through the microscope or, or you know, working out the calculations in a notebook by themselves in a dim corner. Uh, but in fact, the greatest breakthroughs came to light in the conference room so when they were having conversations. Yeah. So, so this ability to have um, in the in your liquid network, the whole point of it is that then it's this flux, it's this flow, including the you know all the the the, the you know the noise, the nasty stuff, the mistakes, the failures, the the head scratchers, the the apparent errors that people were making, but brought in front of a, a collaborative group is where the value um, became apparent. He talks about um, this idea between getting a balance between too much order and too much chaos. And one of the examples he cites is, well, is building uh, 20, but also the Renaissance it happened to emerge from this medieval culture that had too much order. And it just about hit the right balance for creativity to, to kind of flourish. Um, would you agree with that, that? Trying to find that balance is key? Yeah, that's what he's talking about. I, I mentioned, uh, yeah, the, the the noise and the chaos. There has to be some level of chaos, even in the mind. Uh, your brain is. Uh, he he also you know builds on this as as a metaphor, but also just saying that ideas are generated in the brain with uh, random flashing, random you know uh, neurons uh, uh, going off. Uh, creating just noise in your in your brain. In effect, it's chaos. It's a little bit of chaos. It's right on the edge of that. But yeah, it, it has to be a balance. And, it, and the other metaphor for that is actually is saying, you know, liquid versus being a frozen solid in place, too too ordered, too too locked in one mindset. He also uses that in in places where he says group thing and herd mentality um, don't are not good networks for innovation. Um, but by the same token, you know, um, just uh, you have to. You can't just be free floating when, like, when waters and gases state, it's it's too free floating. So this idea of being liquid, being you know held together, there's a, a sort of power in that in that particular state. Do you think there's a problem here with this piece of advice that it, it isn't specific enough? Because there's a contradictory um, point that I read recently from Cal Newport, who actually works at MIT, I think, as a professor, and he said that actually what we need is more deep thinking time. We need to not have these huge open spaces. Uh, we, need, we need to be able to go away in a pod and sort of concentrate by ourselves. And he cites one of the worst examples of this is Facebook's new headquarters they're building, which is apparently going to be the, the biggest open plan working space in the world or something like that. And uh, he says, this is, this is terrible. We're getting to um, a state where it's too open. And actually, we need to find time by ourselves to think deeply about problems. Um, do you think that this book suffers from that? The fact that it just says you need to get a balance, but okay, you know, how do I get that? I'm not. I'm not so sure that the book suffers from that, other than being a product of this. This, you know, the sensibility. And I was going to come to this more into the, you know, this follow-up stuff. But the, the the question here is, you have to take you have to take into account what he's talking about with Building 20. I I, I was actually looking at the, you know, the Microsoft Building 99 the same way. The difference is, just building an open space is not the objective. But in fact, building a space in which people can experiment, collaborate, do different things. The, one of the things about 99 is that they let them move walls around. 
So it's not saying it's just open so we can all just be on, you know, collaborating. Um, I used to have uh, programmer friends that worked at Sun Microsystems, and they don't do the same thing at Oracle anymore. In those days, you used to, you know, people were walking around in bunny slippers and and at 7 p.m. Yeah. writing on the walls in multiple colored whiteboards and and moving things and shifting things around, moving tables around, you know, in the cafeteria as part of working out their ideas. Right? Well, what, that is not what the open space does. What a bunny slippers. Well, he... <laughs> I have no idea. Well, what are they? I have a picture in my head. No. <laughs> Literally a pair of slippers that look like bunny slippers. slippers. Yeah, I'm just being my my point being just building an open space is not really what even the book is saying. What he's, yeah. he's just he's just talking about the fact that for a liquid network to work in a collaborative space to put your mind in an environment to allow it to free flow a little bit is not yeah. the, you know is not the same thing as just having no walls. No, you have to have walls that you can't tear down. Yeah, I got the same impression. He's even saying at some point that um, all those open spaces have one big disadvantage. People just don't like it. So if you put everybody just in an open space, people feel that they can't get any personal time and personal space anymore. I think he made the point to have it flexible, so to rearrange spontaneously. In, and it might be even smaller rooms, but saying, okay, this is a team of four now that's working together and they need, need to, to sit together and that you're able to move around and, and get the right people connected. Yeah, yeah, and he, and he brings it back to Italy, doesn't he, in the Renaissance? And he says it wasn't that there was anything particularly magic about what was happening in, in Italy at the time. It just simply happened they widened the pool of minds um, for coming up for ideas and uh, new ideas and sharing ideas, and that just created this sort of environment where it exploded. You know, it was the right time, the right place. Um, okay, well, let's uh, let's um, jump to another idea: the slow hunch. The, he touches on a, something in this chapter that I just hadn't heard of before, and I found absolutely fascinating. There's this um, case of the FBI agent in the Phoenix memo. So maybe, uh, Mitch, you can give us um, the lowdown on that chapter. Sure. Um, so what does he mean by slow hunches? There are mainly two, uh, two components to it. The first component is that many great ideas often develop from several simple hunches or suspicions. And the example uh, he gives, which you just mentioned, is um, the uh, Phoenix memo where uh, FBI agent Ken Williams submitted a recommendation to watch out for uh, potentially radical students sent from Al-Qaeda to take civil aviation classes to get in positions for concerted terror attacks. Uh, for a number of reasons, this memo wasn't acted upon in time to prevent 9-11, but Johnson analyzes how things um, could have turned out differently if only Williams' suspicion had met with other hunches floating around at the FBI uh, at the time. And the key point about this is that um, hunches actually have to meet each other to collide to form something bigger. The other component here is um, is time, because he calls them uh, slow hunches after all. And the idea here is that uh, many great ideas grow over time, absorbing new information and perspectives along the way. Erroneously, many of those slow hunches in retrospect appear as eureka moments somehow. And um, when analyzed thoroughly, though, um, they mostly are not. And here he gives another example from, from Charles Darwin, who pedantically took uh, notes about his thoughts and discoveries, apparently thought that he came up with a, what was it again, the uh, principles of natural selection, of course, uh, all of a sudden. But his notes um, make obvious that this was not the case, but more a longer process. Yeah, this is pretty interesting, this section of the book, where he says, um, lucky for us, Darwin kept extensive notebooks. You know, every day he would write down hunches, ideas, you know, things he was seeing. 
And going back through them, you can see he actually had the whole theory mapped out before he even came across it himself, right? And one of the pieces of advice he gives uh, to everyone is to basically write everything down. And he talks about this idea of a common book, which I've vaguely heard of before, um, but, you know, it's not really a modern concept, but it was in Victorian times, pretty popular, especially in Britain, where people would keep these, these common books of storing all kinds of pieces of information and then indexing it in rather elaborate ways. Um, what did you think about that idea, Mitch? I, th I found it really, uh, really interesting, actually, um, and I hadn't heard about it uh, before at all. I had to look it up, actually. Um, and he, uh, well, it's basically an associative way of writing and putting notes together of all kinds, basically. And uh, he gives he gives this common book and another um, another example, which is a Victorian household encyclopedia, which. Um, Strangely enough, eventually uh, inspired Tim uh, Berners-Lee to develop the World Wide Web, uh, which was another prime example of uh, a slow hunch, which was developed very slowly over time across a number of different smaller ideas. So, um, yeah, this cultivation of uh, of hunches is really um, his suggestion to us, basically. You have to write down these uh, individual pieces of a puzzle once in a while, and uh, ideally in some associative way. Um, However, the, uh, this whole idea of cultivation is constantly challenged by our everyday pressures. And um, to enable these hunches to grow over time, um, he uh, advises to have like a certain environment, a degree of freedom around that, like what we just heard from, from Michael, to have some space for this. Uh, classic examples that he brought up was um, the English coffee houses, so the public sphere after Habermas, for example. And uh, there were a couple of modern examples as well, like uh, Google's 20% uh, time, where they actually require their employees to spend a fifth of their working time on side projects. And apparently today, even 50% uh, of Google's new uh, products result from these off-time projects, which was really, um, really interesting for me. Mm, absolutely. And I think he also touches yeah, on Bill Gates' idea of taking a week out, right, to, to swat up on right. articles. Yeah. Sorry, Nanetta, you can jump in. So the, 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 the common book reminded me of um, the habit a lot of people have to, to take um, a notebook with them to write everything down, and um, it reminded me of Evernote, which is yes. um, a popular tool where, where people just <laughs> collect anything that's, that's interesting, and it allows some kind of indexing, too. Um, I thought it's interesting, but I didn't have time to, to check it out. That the, the program that he's talking about, um, that that he, yeah, that he uses, and that it actually kind of analyzes his um, whatever he puts all his writings in there, all his chapters, all his blocks, um, any any notes, and then it creates um, connections. So that was very interesting. Right. Later on in the book, he, he mentions that in some details, doesn't he? How he's been using this system for over 10 years, which I guess if he's still using yeah. it, it's 15 years now. And uh, he's got thousands and thousands of quotes and snippets and, you know, interesting points that are all indexed together and, and nicely tagged or whatever. And it was, uh, was going to bring me to that question of Evernote, or actually, do you guys use any kind of system like this where you keep track of quotes and interesting things? Are any, any of you used uh, DevonThink, for example? Well, I, well, I don't. Uh, oh, sorry, yeah, you go ahead, Michael. Well, I, I know that Devon Think is uh, Mac, right? Apple, of course, yeah. Yeah, I use. I mean, I do use Evernote, but it's it's funny because I'm, you know, I've got stacks and stacks and stacks of composition notebooks. I, I have the same type of thing going on commonplace books. I mean, and they they're just full of everything, and I you know, have to put little. Um, 
sticky, you know, the little colored, different colored stickies for stuff I want to, you know, specifically if it's, you know, whether it's literature or business or, or just, you know, whatever, um, that I tag different things. But most of the time it's just going back through and going, ah, and any more it's all Evernote. Yeah, I use a moleskin notebook, which I love, but once it's finished and put on the shelf, I never look at it again, and I'm on to the next one. So yeah. it's useful. No, I, I do look at it. it. I put things in, but I hardly ever go back and yeah. and browse through it, so I don't do like thinking time and consider it as, as slow hunches that I want to connect. Yeah. Well, that was definitely an interesting part of the book, I think, and he comes back to it at the very end in his recommendations for what people can can do for themselves to improve their environment for innovation. But let's um let's jump forward to the end chapter about the fourth quadrant. Uh, this is a really interesting idea, and actually it seems to be the most um the most prominent argument he's making for the whole book. Actually, is is the outcome of this this chapter. So, Michael, could you just tell us what this fourth quadrant is about? The fourth quadrant is actually, I mean, to, the fourth, I have to actually do a layup before I get to it. Uh, he, he basically is going to say, as a, this is on part of the conclusion, the upshot is that you can break up everything over the, the, the last, um, since 1400, all innovation can be plotted on a four, four quadrant graph. I mean, uh, and number one is um, the market and individuals, right? So on the, on the, on the top shelf, one and two, you have market driven, and then you, uh, the, on on uh, the uh, the y axis you would have individuals versus network. So number one is market individual, number two is market network, number three is market non market individual, and, and four is non market network. And then he tracks and plots all of the innovations across the last for, for so for. He does different uh, 1400 to 1600 he plots, and then he does 1600 to 1800, and then 1800 to present. And interestingly enough, the, the patterns are obviously very different. When you get to the fourth quadrant, what we find is where you would expect market pressure to put everything into the first quadrant, to consolidate everything into quadrant run, where you'd have mar market um, uh, would drive innovation through individuals and private corporations. So think about the individuals and, and you know the lab and the whole model. What we see instead, in fact, is that the fourth quadrant is is the actual driver of most innovation in present day. Um, Non-market networked, so it's driven by like I, I just think of the obvious op anything open source in any type of framework is is what shows up in that non-market networked space. I mean, and he goes through it, it, the, the question is the list he has um, make the point, and it's it's hard to argue with the question. You know, starting with Braille, uh, going all the way through the the, the World Wide Web, and, and going through um, you know, there's a whole just a whole series of them, and he does actually do all the anecdote and all, or all the, uh, all the foot, footnoted pieces for why these are the most significant innovations and why they show up here. So, um, the, the 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 argument here is that while we would expect a certain, you know, the eureka moments and the individuals hard at work in the lab, and 
um, the patent system to drive to quadrant one, what we in fact see is that proliferation of communication and, and uh, information, the ability for people to collaborate across the internet, the, the culture and the, the, the flow of information and the way individuals are taking that, parsing that and co collaborating in general has opened up this whole, what he calls the fourth quadrant, an, a non-market network space. Right, and he's making quite a big play here for the modern research university, would you say? Well, would I say, yeah, I mean, that's that's exactly the point. The interesting thing, okay, the interesting thing here is he's making play for the modern universe because they're actually able to collaborate. The the Now, the, we're going to get into, I'm sure, at some point, too, in our, our overarching discussion and summary, um, some of the, the question marks, but that, that was a question mark, too, about how even in five years what has changed where the, where the relevant points are some of the things that he's saying are they still holding true um, you know just from a predictability does it still seem relevant overall it, it really is and he is making a play in the sense of what you would see as the modern academic research institution however we also know that there's just there's still a lot of um, uh, backwater, if you will, in institutional thought. That's problematic, and he doesn't deal with that at all. Mm. Yeah, okay. Yeah, it was pretty interesting. Um, so he's not saying that the commercial aspects are vital, that actually there's more than one way to formulate um, innovation. It can be the non-profit-driven side as well. And in fact, with the numbers, like you say, it shows that actually that's one of the overwhelming sources of innovation, certainly from a platform perspective, um, the, the, uh, the non-market um, area of the academic research universities just seems overwhelmingly um, the biggest source for innovation, actually. Uh, okay, so um, uh, what else should we touch on in this chapter? Any, any other points you want to make there, Michael? We um, well, mostly, I mean, the interesting thing is it's really because it's driven as a conclusion, right? It's drawing from a number of other pieces that we're actually not able even, like you mentioned, platforms. We didn't really talk about exaptation. We didn't talk about error or or serendipity. But the upshot pulling those pieces into, into this is actually uh, that you would have a predictive model that you would think based on these things. And then what we're actually seeing is in economic terms especially, um, there's a lot of inefficiency. It still goes back to liquid networks. It still goes back to, you know, that the, the in a natural history of good ideas, where ideas come from, um, you're actually saying that it still holds, those pieces all still hold true. You have to have platforms. You have to have a sort of balance between uh, order and non-order. Uh, you have to, you, you do have inefficient net markets in effect um, because an efficient market would would not show up in the fourth quadrant. It'd show up in the first quadrant. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, as a as an as a conclusion, and I think this is where we're we're headed in this, in summarizing our our positions on the book is that from a conclusion standpoint, this this all holds together, right? I mean, this is this is the whole point. Is that he's saying there are things you can take away from this book and walk out into the world and say, putting myself in a better environment, writing things down, keeping things in Evernote, uh, being part of collaborative communities, bringing my you know bringing my uh, my errors and my failures uh, into the conference room, in, into uh, an open environment, and and putting them on the table. Um, there's still innovation capabilities possible uh, as long as you recognize that that it doesn't have to be cordoned off. 
Okay, <clears throat> well, let, let's try and um, summarize our feelings about this book then. So to me, this is very much like a history of innovation book. Although he's got a, a kind of framework in there, he's got some advice, it very much it leans towards the history side of things. So, so the question is really, how useful is this kind of book uh, to innovation practitioners? Um, Ninetta, what's your thoughts on that? Well, I thought it was interesting to read about all those examples. It was it had some really, really fascinating stories. Um, I also felt it's very history focused, so there's not a lot of um, takeaway messages. So I've, I felt this YouTube video that's that's out there about the slow hunch. If you if you want to get the most important takeaway messages, watch this this video, and you pretty much have it all and if you if you if you like the the stories and and the details and read the whole book that was the my, my, my big picture impression and overall it just um, drives across the, the the point for collaboration very very nicely so saying okay it's not one eureka idea usually that that is the the final product but um, ideas need to mature and usually you have what when he, when he talks about those slow hunches the, the pieces of ideas that are not really ideas just thoughts you don't really know what to do with yet and they need to to connect and again you need the network and, and collaboration to make things happen so I, I like the overall message um, I don't think you need to read the the, the full book to, to get to it, though, unless you really want to dive into the details. Mm. But you'd agree that it's a fun read, though, right? It's, it's good. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah it, it, has really, it has really fascinating stories, but if you're looking for, I want to have some, some, some takeaway messages, how to, how to be more innovative, you, you could get that um, quicker. Yeah. So, Michael, what do you think are the problems with this book, then? Uh, <laughs> I I don't know uh, problems. Well, the the problem in a general way is that the type of book it is is that it's a meta knowledge book. But I mean, there's it really is. I mean, while he's clearly well read and the anecdotes are supposed to be there for support, and it's wide ranging in terms of subject matter. I mean, everything in terms of you know, hard sciences, biology, chemistry, physics. You know, those are all there, obviously. But so is English literature. Um, the the key here to me is that you even brought up the deep thinking before. Um, it's it's not necessarily T-shaped at all in terms of there's no place where it's a deep dive, and he acknowledges that even in the conclusion, where uh, where he's saying you know you, there's different ways to do these kinds of approaches, and there he's just chosen by by definition to to kind of. Uh, keep this at a high level, string anecdotes together, and then at the end of the day, he, his final statement is on that. Um, the final statement is is on the platform and the fourth quadrant. Yeah, it feels like he kind of snuck that one in at the end. It was like the whole book was about nothing to do with the research institutions, but it was kind of debunking the idea that um, the lone genius is is the way for innovation. It's not at all. It's about the environment. But then at the very end, he sneaks this idea in that actually the, the research university, the modern version of that, is is our best hope, if you like. Um, but okay. Uh, well, let me I, 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 real quick on that yeah. too, because I was just in a conference a couple of weeks ago where that actually came up, and it was very interesting because the, uh, a guy said, if you're pinning your innovation on academic research, uh, you're going the wrong direction. And that causes caused quite a, a kind of interesting discussion and kind of a little bit of an uproar in the room. It was it's kind of fascinating because, well, okay, that's only if you assume that academia can't, 
innovate itself to get away from you know the sense of the same same thing where you have lone researchers working on lone projects and we've seen that firsthand so that's still up for grabs as well mm, okay um, Mitch what's your thoughts any concerns well yeah I personally find it definitely more fascinating than helpful for a practitioner um, it explains a lot and it didn't tell me a lot of new things it just had uh, a lot of fascinating surroundings and, and background histories around it uh, which I love to read and I would definitely would recommend it as, uh, as a general read but for a practitioner I find it a bit weak what I do like though is that uh, in effect it calls for technology so whether it's the internet in general or communication platforms in particular whether that's um, it's targeting uh, social only like Facebook or a social business like uh, Office 360 or innovation platforms for that matter um, because all of them offer information to flow along multiple unpredictable paths which is what he is calling for and I'm pretty convinced that the uh, IoT will stimulate this uh, even more. So I think it's 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 a good thing that he pushes here in in this direction because I think this is very relevant to all of us, especially in the innovation sector. And I can easily agree on all the points he makes. Find it difficult though to really implement things in practice. It's more like like we just said. It's more a history of innovation. Yeah. Okay. Um, <clears throat> Michael, anything else you wanted to um, to raise? I know you mentioned a couple of points as we've been talking. I forgot what those were. <laughs> well, uh, actually, the, the interesting thing is that you know it you have to take in take into consideration it's the natural history of innovation in effect. That's it's what he's trying to do, and and you're trying to peel apart which is a metaphor and which is an anecdote and which is trying to you know which is actually a thesis statement for any given pattern that he's dealing with. Uh, a couple other things we haven't really touched on is 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 the pseudo attack, if you will, on uh, the patent system. He kind of backs out. So I'm not saying we should do away with patents, but it's an interesting take to say, you know, that intellectual property laws have have throttled innovation in, in a lot of ways and that's I think was where the fourth quadrant is even born in the first place in, in, in the sense of the argument um, and we had we didn't really talk too much about you know the, 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 the what he's doing in response to intellectual property I'd like to see that built out even a little bit more and in fact you know that it's a, a you know 2010 so what's happened you know even in the sh short time because in our in other work where we've looked at especially practicing work right with Christensen in the disruptive books um, we saw there was still plenty of places where things have changed and we're seeing change all the time and it's it's fascinating to go you know it's even accelerated from this writing to say that you know things are evolving even more quickly potentially uh, in terms of uh, co-opetition that's happening in the business world, different technologies that are growing out, you know, all the time in such a profusion. It's it's right on that edge of, of chaos and yet still being able to, to leverage a lot of the ideas in this book. I don't know that it's something I would hand to somebody, you know, in, in a business context and say, here's how you innovate. But I don't think it's necessarily um, a bad thing to have on yourself to say, hmm, just to kind of 
you know, and that's where more brainstorming type of thing might come from. Mm. I do recall at some point in the book, he touches on the idea of an idea management kind of database for companies. And, uh, you know, the idea that um, at Google, for example, these 20% projects, the only real criteria there is they have to log them in a public system to say, this is what I'm working on. And the reason for that is people can stumble across it and say, hey, I can help you or I've got an idea for this and, and really foster that idea of um, sharing um, across the whole network. So that really relates to what we do, I think. And, and maybe some companies still don't get the, the idea or the, the benefits of having an open system of ideas. And people are still very protective about ideas. Even within a company's walls, they're still very protective about sharing them and, and sort of, you know, do you still have ownership to them? But the benefits, I think what he's saying in this book, right, is the benefits of the openness far, far outweigh some of the downsides. Um, would you agree with that, Ninetta, maybe? Yeah, I totally agree with that, um, that 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 point that it should be open and that you should um, enable collaboration, making sure you get different um, expertise and, and different backgrounds involved. And I also felt that I might even want to take it a step further. Right now, that the trend is to to do everything very focused and say we have this this campaign. It solves a certain problem. Give us the idea to solve this, and we appreciate that. We need collaboration to get the idea better because it's not the perfect idea to begin with. But with the idea of the slow hunch, I think even focusing more on things that are not even ideas yet. So any any kind of inspiration, what's interesting, and, and just what, what you would put in a common book, just, hey, this is interesting. I've seen this at a, at a conference. I don't really know what, what to do with it, um, but I want to capture it to to have a platform that does not only do the, the, the focused idea, uh, the, the focused campaigns with, with ideas, but also more the common book approach where you um, have inspirations, anything interesting and potentially trends and have more input from, 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 from the outside, more of this um, network idea input sharing within an innovation platform rather than the very, very focused approach only. Absolutely. And obviously, we don't want to talk about what we do too much, but I think we've seen that a lot recently. With um, We've had trends and in insights added into our platform, and we see that people love this because it's bringing external just uh, hunches, I guess, from, from the outside world into your thinking and inspiring it within the company. And also, people can add their own, and that's even more useful sometimes. So um, seems like we might be following the same sort of uh, path of thinking that he is a little bit. Uh, okay, so uh, maybe we just go on to the takeaways. What kind of um, takeaways did we get from the book? Mitch, what was your big takeaway so far? Uh, my biggest takeaway is to um, start again and write stuff up, which I did during uh, my university studies and shortly afterwards, but uh, I stopped at some point. And um, I certainly would agree that daily pressures are, are um, an issue here in that respect, and so I need to create a system that somehow circumvents these issues. And um, that one for sure. And uh, apart from that, I just feel, like I said, basically he's, he's um, directing the same, he's, he's going the same direction as we are uh, here at Hype, and uh, I just feel reinforced with what he says. And uh, yeah, that's a good thing. Yeah, I agree with you. And actually, one of the takeaways for me, it's a fascinating book, and I love all the stories, um, and I can't wait to sort of write it up, actually, as, as an article. But the big takeaway for me is I need to improve my system for creating notes. I have this uh, this Moleskine notebook. I have 
my notes on my Apple uh, device on the iPhone, but I don't have a really good system for this. So I'm going to look into DevonThink again. I saw it a couple of years ago, but now he's really advocating it. And also like Evernote, maybe I need to give that a go. I've tried Evernote, but just couldn't get along with it, but maybe I'll try that again. So that was a big takeaway for me. And also in general, the idea that um, creating really strong collaborative environments full of smart people will generate results. You just need to create the environment. And that's something you have to remember, I guess, uh, rather than trying to go it alone all the time. But anyway, Michael, what's your uh, what's your takeaway? Uh, actually, I like I like the quote I've already given, which is from the Liquid Networks. I think that this is really telling, and I think it's uh, not even from what we do on a practitioner day, but just in general. I think when you talk about the individual, the the archetypal individual eureka moment and we see that this is just not the case when we really start to look at it and realize that you know the whole thing about crowd wisdom it's not the wisdom you know it's not the wisdom of the crowd the crowd is not smart by being a crowd in fact it's probably you know that group think it's it's potentially dumber in many ways what happens though is that it's the it's the individuals getting smarter because they're connected to a network that's the differentiation, and it's very—it's a—it's a nice subtle thing to take that out and say, "Wait a second, you know," because you're not handing over responsibility for thinking. You're not handing over responsibility for participating in your own life and, and collaborating in the ideas that you have, bringing them to, to bear. The other side of it is you—you're not really. There's so many places where people think, "Oh, I have this great idea," and keep it secret. Uh, and I think you have, there's so many places where you say, you have to give it some air. You have to breathe it. You have to talk to other people. Um, and talking to other people, it's the people that you actually invite to that conversation that become important for the network. It's not just throwing it out there anywhere, which again comes into IP and commercial ability, but being able to say, I have a great idea, or I, ha I feel this slow hunch, and continuously working it as part of a collaboration piece inside of a smart network. I think you know that's what I'm taking away. Okay, cool. Um, Nanetta? I think from the professional side, the taking the common book approach to to innovation, even in, in companies, and saying, okay, it's not only focus ideas that we're after, but um, we, we we should try to also collect hunches and have this common book somewhere in the platform. I think that's that's very interesting for innovation in in, in corporations and. Personally, I felt the same way with I need to be better with how to capture my notes and have it more more structured. And I was really intrigued by the idea of a reading vacation. So I feel like at least locking up um, for a long weekend sometime soon with a pile of books and mm. do a short <laughs> reading vacation. <laughs> Get through one of them, <laughs> maybe. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Okay. Cool. So at the very end of the book, he he has this um, this final sentence on the uh, things for advice, and he gives um, fourteen different um, points. But I just go through a couple of them. So he talks about going for a, going for a walk much more often, cultivating your hunches a little bit, writing everything down, keeping your folders messy, embracing serendipity. Um, taking on multiple hobbies, which is something we didn't really talk about. It's an interesting point, and also frequenting coffee houses or other liquid networks. And, um, and also letting others build on your ideas. Those are some of the points that he, um, he closes the book with. So all pretty interesting. Um, and I think that this book is very much a good um, uh, <laughs> precursor to the book that we're reading next, which is The Innovators by Walter Isaacson, um, a huge book, but touches on many of the same themes here, particularly around the idea of where does an innovation actually come from? Is it from a, a lone genius or is it from um, a network or an environment of people? 
And uh, yeah, so we'll be looking at that one next. So uh, that's it from here in Bond. So thanks, guys. Thanks, Mitch. Thanks to you. Bye-bye. Thanks, Denver. Gone already. Bye, Bye, Denver. Bye bye. Bye bye. Thanks, Boston. (laughs) Bye, everyone. Thanks, guys.